The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it's a sweet thing to be able to sing and think about how you are a father to us. As has been sung and as was prayed earlier, you are transcendent, you are high and exalted and lifted up, and then also marvelously near. Aware, attentive, and near. And I'm thankful for that, and now hoping in that we are so bold as to ask you to draw near in now teaching us to take our hearts and hands, our minds and hands, and in this moment now to teach us. Teach us not just in a classroom, teach us in relationship. Make us a people who are more informed and then therefore more conformed to you, to how you are. A good, good father who cares for your people. Make us like that this morning. Use your word. We commission your spirit now where you assign him the task of opening our minds and teaching us and making your word clear. Will you clear away distractions from the room and from our minds and hearts and teach us? that Christ would be honored and that we, your people would be grown. Do that this morning, please, Lord. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1. And as we've done so, I've been using the phrase gospel ministry. Use that again and again to describe the main thrust of this chapter and, and really indeed of the whole book of 2 Timothy. Paul wants Timothy... We, Apostle Paul is writing this book, and he wants Timothy to, to embrace ministry that puts the gospel forward, that, that serves up the gospel, the message of God's saving work in Jesus, of God's grace in Christ. And he wants him to do that without altering it. He wants him to embrace it even if it costs him a lot, even if it brings him suffering, hardship. That's the call. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of God's grace in Christ alone, but join together, join with me, join with the rest of the church, join with, with Christ himself in, in ministering the gospel. Gospel ministry. I've seen it several times. We're going to keep seeing it because it's the main point of the book. This book written by the Apostle Paul, who we saw last week, Verse 11 recognizes his call, the call that God's put in his life to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He's writing this book to Pastor Timothy, who also is called by God, uniquely assigned and given gifts to be a preacher and a teacher, not an apostle, but a preacher and a teacher. So they both have some very similar giftings and some very similar vocations. They're both preachers and teachers. And as we talked about last week, I mentioned this, in some sense that applies to all of us, that we all are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. We all are to be ready to proclaim, to preach the message, and we all are to teach it, to explain it. So this is, in a sense, about all of us. However, 
Some are assigned to do that more so. Pastors, teachers, maybe missionaries. If you think about offices in the church, back in 1 Timothy, the office of elder. Guard the gospel. Teach it. Put it out there. So all of us, yeah, but some of us more so. And so it could be that if you track with that, you come to this point and you say like, I see that, but I also kind of think that this is more talking about other people. I'm a Christian. I'm certainly in the church. I understand that. In the, so yes, it's about me a little bit, but really, it's Paul talking to Pastor Timothy. Preach and teach, Pastor. Guard the, the doctrine, Elder. So yeah, I, I get it. It is for me, but it's also kind of for capital M ministers in the church. And so I'm kind of reading somebody else's mail. This is about them more so. And maybe that also means that don't be ashamed, but embrace suffering for gospel ministry. Well, if I'm sharing my faith, that's me too, but that doesn't happen every day. And so most of the time, that's not about me either. And it's good to know but it's not directly speaking to me. I'm just a servant in the church, not the pastor. And then we come to our text for today, where Paul drives home his point about gospel ministry. He drives it home and illustrates it for this pastor by using an example of someone who's not a pastor, who's just a Christian, just a servant in the church. He's done a great deal of deacon-like work, we might say. Unashamed gospel ministry that is not preaching and teaching. And he's the example, he's the model. Paul the Apostle writes to Pastor Timothy and says, look at this guy, be like him. And that tells us something, I think, important about, about scope of what gospel ministry actually is, and it's going to actually wrap us all back into this re really tightly. Yeah, for sure, we're going to see a whole lot more in this book about ministry of word, but gospel ministry is not just that. It is also ministry of service. That's what we're going to look at today in this passage here at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 1. So I'm going to read it and then pass back through and make two observations of, of unequal length. The first one more about the what and the second one about the how. So here's 2 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. 2 Timothy, the end of chapter 1. So here's the first observation. We're all called to join in gospel ministry. 
like we've seen before. We're all called to join in gospel ministry, and that includes the ministry of costly Christ-like service. We're all called to join in gospel ministry, and that includes the ministry of costly Christ-like service. Paul's already taught up in verse 8, Christian, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, the Lord's prisoner. And now in verse 15, he gives us a negative example. You are aware, of course, that all who are in Asia, and by Asia he doesn't mean Asia like we understand it, he means the Roman province named Asia, which is essentially the western part of the modern country of Turkey. Ephesus was the capital of that area. You're aware that all who are in Asia, meaning a whole bunch of people there, have turned away from me. They've abandoned Paul. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened. We don't know. But Paul and Timothy both knew, and he reminded Timothy about it here again. Why? To give him a warning and a negative example. What I'm talking about in this previous paragraph, not like that. Don't let that be you. People inside the church, people you know, Timothy, turned away. And that, that's the warning that should come to all of us. We should, we should see that and realize, don't go there. Not like that. But on the other hand, verses 16 to 18, we find the contrasting positive example, which is the main focus. A man named Onesiphorus. We don't know much about him. This is all that we know. But the picture that it paints of him is really interesting, quite remarkable. He's from Ephesus, evidently a member of the church there. And verse 18 tells us, at the end, tells us that while during his time there, he rendered a great deal of service to the church. And the word there is just the standard word for service, the word for ministry, the word from which we get our word deacon. Doesn't mean that he was necessarily an official deacon. It just means that he did a lot. And Timothy well knew all of the service that he provided. He did a lot of things in the church there that were very helpful that were not preaching and teaching. Just service. Any and every sort. So he should be commended for that if that was all that there was. But there's more. And as Paul recounts this in 1617... Look at this. We're, we're going to skip through 16 and 17 and see what, see what Paul says there, but kind of try to put yourself into that situation that Paul describes there. Paul gets hauled off to Rome as a prisoner because he's a Christian and a preacher. And Onesiphorus left his family in Ephesus to travel the 800 miles to Rome not an easy thing back then, but he did it. And when he got there, he searched for Paul earnestly, it says, until he found him. It's the end of verse 17. Before, we can read at the book, end of the book of Acts, how Paul had been detained in Rome before in, under house arrest in a very public place with open access. People came and went. There was much teaching that went on for a long time, probably because the authorities knew that they were going to release him. It wasn't that serious of a deal. 
Well, this time the imprisonment is different. It's leading to his execution. And so he is thoroughly, tightly detained. He's chained, probably in an underground dungeon, as was the way it was done. So imagine this. Even today, put yourself here. Imagine trying to go to pick any other country. Try to figure out where they keep their death row inmates. It'd be hard to figure that out. Even in a country like a Western country, let alone a non-Western country, where do you keep the guys you're about to kill? Now layer on top of that the fact that he's a political prisoner. And if you show up there, your very presence there is indication that you're one of them. That you are a part of, that you believe the same things for which they arrest him and for which they're going to kill him. And so you ask around, you're searching earnestly, you're, you're knocking on door after door, you're placing phone calls, you're, you're talking to authorities, you're walking into this headquarters and, and that ministry building, and, and as you talk to people and you ask and you, you walk finally into the prison and you walk onto the cell block and you see them realizing you're one of them and they're whispering, standing off in the corner looking at you and you begin to wonder, am I going to get out of here? Am I going to be able to walk out of here? But he went into that on purpose again and again and again. He often refreshed me, verse 16, and was not ashamed of my chains. He refreshed him. Certainly means he, he brought some some material goods to him. Back then, prisoners in this situation were sort of on their own hook. So he probably needed food and probably needed clothing that this man brought, Onesiphorus brought to him. But refresh is a bigger word than that. He wasn't just material. In some way, he emotionally and spiritually met Paul. He met Paul and refreshed his heart. It's not hard to see why. This is very personal for Paul. He describes this often using the first person pronoun, me, me, me. He searched for me and found me and refreshed me often. He laid aside his personal cares and at great cost and great risk sought me out and found me and refreshed me and breathed life into me. He ministered to me. Much like another life giver that Paul knows. He was like Jesus to me. He walks in the door and his voice and then his hands, they are, it's the voice and the hands of Jesus and his embrace of me, his his hug, the warmth, it's the embrace and the warmth and the tender touch of Jesus. His compassion towards me, his thoughtful care for me, his love for me, it's the love of Jesus to me. He refreshed my heart as he pictured for me, this, this is what the gospel is about. 
It's so easy for me to forget. I'm sitting here in a hole, chained up in the dark with my mind just running. Yes, I remember God, and I also look, at, look ahead at the axe, and I'm wondering, and, and then they, this, Jesus walks through the door to me and refreshed me. Not ashamed of me here, but he sought me out. What a blessing. It's a big deal for Paul. Of course. But why does he bring this up here? Why tell Timothy at all? But why tell Timothy here? You, you might think, if you flip the page, it might fit in at the end, later, better, where he asks Timothy to come visit him and to bring him goods, things that he needs. It would, it would fit well there. Why not there? It belongs here because of what Paul's doing with it. We put a couple things together, we see the point that we're working towards here. Don't be ashamed of me, the Lord's prisoner, verse 8. Unlike those guys, verse 15, but like Onesiphorus, who himself was not ashamed of my chains, but pursued me and sought me out and ministered to me. You put that together, and here's what Paul's saying. This guy is what I meant in verse 8. He's what I'm talking about, Timothy. This isn't to nullify preaching and teaching. I don't mean to say that, Timothy. You've got a job. You've got a task. But what I want you to see clearly in your mind is a servant a man like this Onesiphorus who laid aside his own family's welfare, his own resources, his own, put his own physical freedom and even his own life at risk so as to come not to be ashamed of me, but on the other hand to embrace me and to honor me, to give me life, to bless me. That's what I'm talking about. This is gospel ministry. Do this. This is the point for me where as I was looking at this, I kind of thought, huh, interesting. I have interacted a bunch with 2 Timothy over the course of my Christian life. Always, though, in context of evangelism, preaching, teaching, missionary work, Word ministry. And always then, the previous paragraph that we looked at, or you flip ahead and you see chapter 4, preach the word in season and out of season, always those things have resonated significantly with me and I've seen like, yes, there's a, there's a ministry, there's a sacrifice for the gospel that's, that's proclamation-oriented. Always thought like that. And then I come to this and I notice, huh, I would have expected a negative example to be 
somebody who distorted the gospel. Not somebody who abandoned Paul. And I would have expected a positive example to be somebody who preached and taught boldly and clearly and confidently. Not somebody who just visited him in prison. It is not what I expect when I come to this paragraph. But this is what Paul says. Exhibit A of what I'm talking about is Onesiphorus. Pastor Timothy, be like him. Which rearranges some things, at least in my mind and maybe in your mind too. It highlights that when we're talking about gospel ministry, that we are not in an either or or a or a or a superior and inferior. We are in a, a both and discussion. Both ministry of the word and ministry of deed, if I if I can put it that way. Or if I want to put it differently, ministry like eldering, ministering like deaconing. That we are in a both and situation. It is not one is superior or we're only talking about one of them. Both equally important, and both then right and necessary and to be vigorously, unashamedly, sacrificially pursued by all Christians. Pastors and elders need to deacon, and deacons and servants need to proclaim, both and. Both and together. Both are gospel ministry. What Onesephorus did is gospel ministry. So when you... Christian, when you do like him, you are embracing gospel ministry yourself. Not only when you share your faith. When you live out like Onesephorus, a life of costly, Christ-like service to others. It's gospel ministry because what it's doing when you're, when you're pursuing this kind of a serving life, what it's doing is it's laying out there this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like, the generous and gracious and merciful one. Look. And it's for the sake of building up Jesus' name then, to make him well known and, and known accurately, and we hope trusted and embraced. It's for the sake of building up Jesus' people and Jesus' kingdom as life is given to them and as the body is, is wholly formed and fed. And it's a ministry that is ultimately rooted in the work of Jesus because that's what has come into me and changes me and frees me up to give away my life. It's gospel ministry through and through. Even if I never actually proclaim a message, I'm preaching with my life. Serving like Christ. It's both and, both together. So we must all think both and together. And as, as I like work that through from, from kind of maybe a little bit of a new perspective for me this, this week, what, as I work that through, what I think is, man, there's some freedom in that. Because if, if I give the impression from the last paragraph or if I think that really, really gospel ministry is preaching and teaching, 
I've lived under this. Maybe, maybe you have. I've lived under this, that what I really need to be doing is, is like sharing my faith. And if I'm not, I'm not really in the game. And I'm supposed to be in the game. So start talking. That's how it always feels to me. And I, I, I came of Christian age in, in a, a missionary organization, and that was, that was often the kind of like the, the push in the back, like, start talking. And that's good. Don't misunderstand. That is, that is a clear point in this book. Talk. But here's the freedom. And serve also, both and. And for some of us, that feels like, thank goodness. Because I resonate with, I, I always feel like, some of us are thinking, I, I feel like I, I feel the joy of the Lord when I'm serving people. I see Onesephorus' life and I say, yes. Steve just discovered this? What are you talking about? That, that, yes. And I resonate with that. But I've kind of felt like that's wrong or inferior. Bummer. It's not. Both and. Both and. So there is great honor. Onesephorus is placed in a position of honor here. The model to be followed. There is honor placed on all of our Christ-like service, all of our laying down of lives to bless other people, there is a great honor. That, too, is gospel ministry in all the ways that I just outlined. Let that be an encouragement to you. Maybe for some of us then, like for me, let it also be kind of a prodding. Because if it's both and, that means I can't say, well, my deal is I preach and teach. I don't serve. Uh, just the same as we said, everybody in a way preaches and teaches. Everybody in a way ser sacrificially serves. Both and. Both and. It's gospel ministry, full-orbed gospel ministry. Some will do it more than others in different settings and different giftings. Of course, yes. Both and. This gives, I think, some sweet, I think it gives some release and it should give some honor to this type of ministry, this serving type of ministry in the church. It's good, it's right, it's necessary. And then, I wanted to say but, I'm not sure but's the right word. And then, also hear this caution. Because it's possible you heard their release. <sighs> I've kind of felt the foot in my back start talking, move forward, do this thing that's felt really hard. Service feels much more natural. I feel the blessing of God. It's how I'm gifted. Okay, so here's the caution. That's not to say service is simple. Look back over 16, 17, 18. Tell me which is harder. 
Timothy's job preaching and teaching in Ephesus? Or what Onesiphorus did? While in Ephesus and then with Paul in Rome, which is harder? Frankly, my main job is more like Timothy's, and I think Onesiphorus is harder. I, I know that the, the pastoring job is not easy, but that job looks pretty hard like he did it. And, of course, how he did it is what's held up to us as the model. Deliberate choice of bold sacrifice and costly risk-taking. Faith lived out as love. I'm going to pack my bags, say goodbye to my family, and journey, might as well be around the world back in the ancient world. I'm going to journey hundreds of miles to a foreign city that probably he's never been to to look for a guy who's an enemy of the state and who's about to die wherever I'm going to find him. And I'm going to spend my own resources and put my own self at risk to do that. That does not sound easy to me. That's the model. The only way we could possibly think that I got let off the hook, I don't have to to preach and teach, I can do the easy thing. The only way we could possibly think that service is the easy thing is if we don't have a really high view of the sacrifice and the deliberate, intentional laying out of self that Paul means by service. The starting line for service is certainly much, much easily seen. It's much lower. The starting line is somebody needs to take out the garbage. Let's do that. That's not the end, though. This kind of service is what Paul's pointing us towards. What Paul's modeling for us here in Onesiphorus. Embrace that. Share in that kind of suffering for the gospel. <clears throat> Unashamedly so. So, if we're thinking about this in a both and sense, we now have to immediately lay right here the very same questions that we laid before the other call to preach and teach. What are you afraid you'll lose if you embrace that kind of sacrificing? Christ-centered, suffering service. What are you afraid you'll lose? It's probably the very same stuff. Resources and time, freedom, maybe my life. Maybe. But there it is. That, that's the cost that needs to be faced as we see I'm called to both proclaim and serve as gospel ministry. The problem with Phagellus and Hermogenes, verse 15, they answered the question, what am I afraid I'm going to lose? 
and then decided that that was too high of a cost and said, no thanks. And they turned away. We've got to face the question and then say, is that too high of a cost? I don't know. What are you looking at? Now let me pause right here and ask you to think about something. I'm about to move to the second point. But before I say what it is, what is it? Two guys and one guy. They both look at, this is what it might cost if I were to embrace Christ-like suffering for the gospel, if I were to embrace gospel ministry, if I were to, to not be ashamed of this prison of the Lord, but instead step out and serve him. This is what it might cost. And one of them says, yes. And two of them say, no. What's the difference? This is the second point. What's the second point? Do you know? Clue, what have I not talked about from the passage yet? What is it? Anybody? The mercy of God. Second point. Life-giving mercy from God is motivation to give away your life in merciful service. Life-giving mercy from God is motivation to give away your life in merciful service. You could say, here's these two and here's this one, and they look, they both see the cost, they both count it up, and they say, yep, that's what it might cost me. And one of them says, and I also see something else. I also see that it is impossible to out-mercy the merciful one. Mercy comes up twice in this passage as Paul recounts beginning and end as, as he recounts what Onesephorus did for him. Verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me. Not actually a prayer. He's talking to Timothy rather than to God. He's making a pronouncement about what he wants God to do. Give mercy to the household of Onesephorus. Technically, that's not to Onesephorus himself. It's to his household. And some have thought perhaps that means Onesephorus is dead. Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't, doesn't mean that. But it does mean that he has his household in view, which probably tells us what he means by the idea of mercy. He means Mercy as in a relieving, an alleviating of pains or needs or difficulties, taking away something that's hurtful, like we talk about mercy ministry today. Addressing food or clothing or shelter or health or emotional and mental encouragement. Paul wants God to be that towards Onesephorus' family. Now, that's verse 16, and then verse 18 he searched me and found me. May the Lord grant that he also finds something else, finds mercy on the day of the Lord at the end. 
So mercy now in this life and mercy at the end. Mercy. This is not a motivation, important. This is not a motivation along the lines of quid pro quo. He did this, so he deserves that. That would be the fitting and appropriate response. Mercy, by definition, is never earned. You can't deserve mercy. Paul does not have that in mind. This is not how you get mercy from God. I do this, then he does that. It's not not to motivate us like that. Actually, there's something far better than that. What Paul's talking about here is something that we don't have to, in fact, can't work so as to deserve. It's a gift given. He will give. God gives mercy because he's the sort of God that gives, that loves to fill up buckets when we pour them out that loves to use us as conduits through which he moves mercy into the world, into his family especially. Perhaps Paul has in mind the beatitude, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Perhaps Paul has in mind what Jesus said as was prayed earlier, story in Matthew 25. Whatever he actually has in mind, what he's saying to us is, I know something about the God of mercy. The God of merciful, the God of mercy loves to see his people be merciful. And he will never be in debt to them. He will respond now here in this life and he will respond at the end. A people who are merciful will find from God mercy. That's who he is. That must be seen right next to the cost. I feel like I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to lay down myself for these other folks here. And the fear is I'm just going to lose. And what Paul reminds us of here, what, what Onesiphorus surely saw, is that actually I, I can't out-mercy him. It feels like sacrificial service. There's no such thing. Hudson Taylor, 19th century missionary to China, recounted his life looking back at all of the hardships that he endured, all the suffering that he'd embraced, and said, I never made a sacrifice. What he means is, oh, I suffered plenty. I poured myself out constantly. It was always filled up. In this life, it was always returned to me. And in the age to come, eternal life. I never made a sacrifice. Paul writes this here so that we will see, along with Onesiphorus, that we'll see not just the cost that it would, it, would, it would possibly be if we were to embrace this kind of suffering, but also the mercy that will certainly be from the God of mercy 
who redeemed us to be this kind of a people and then promises, I never leave you, I never forsake you, I never put you out there and call you to give away something that I won't provide for you myself. We have strong reason to believe this because he has been like that with us already. He is the one who sought us out, who poured out his own life for us and mercy to save us. He will not be different tomorrow or next year or, the, or in the following decades. He will always continue to meet his people. Mercy now and mercy then. Always, Christian. As we think about, I've, I've got a life that I need to to put before the Lord and I need to live in a way that he calls me to. Oh, I see him calling me to gospel ministry. Oh, I see him calling me to sacrificial service of others. Always, right at that moment, God provides for us a means for us to hold up right next to the cost. The certain future blessing from him to you. Count on it. It's true. That is not to say that it will be exactly how you think it will be. That there won't be any pain involved. Of course, of course, of course. But you cannot outgive this God. You cannot outlove him and you cannot outmercy him. I, I don't know about you, but I kind of stop right there and I have to often ask myself that all fits. I see that. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Do you? Why should you? Not because I said so. May God, Christian church, may God by his spirit press onto you and utterly convince you. I'm going to say this, but these, these cannot be my words. It has to be the spirit of God that says this to you. Well, that's my prayer. Son, daughter, I love you. I do. May God say that to you. And may God then say to you, when I see you aggrieved or hurt, I'm aggrieved and moved. Have you not looked back at 
at what I've done in the gospel to save you. Yeah, what that means is that I'm for you just that much right now. May he press it into you so that you actually believe that. And that means I'm merciful towards you. And I'll never leave you hanging out to dry. Even when it looks to you like I might, I'm not. I will come to you. I will redeem you. I will show you mercy today. I will meet your needs. I will refresh your heart. And I will deliver you at the end to life forevermore. Because I love you in Christ. May the Spirit of God press that into you and make that seem real. That's what frees us to rejoicingly embrace costly service for others. I have one who holds me and I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. Really, I'm good. May God press that into you. I'm going to pray that what I just said becomes his real living word to your heart so you believe it and see the mercy of God for you in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we are a people who sit here now in front of you drawn right up to a point of of helplessness. We can't make ourselves, we can't make ourselves believe that you love us with such a vast, wide, long, high, deep love. You're that good and that merciful and that gracious to us. We can't make ourselves believe that, so we cry out to you, please, Lord, open our eyes to cause us to see. Not just the cost, but also the blessing. Not just the world, but also you. Please, Lord, Move in your people and do us this good this morning. Cause us to behold by your Spirit the breadth of your merciful, kind love for us. Cause it to run in us and give us life. Please do that for the sake of Jesus in us, for the sake of his kingdom and for our good. Please do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, our merciful Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.